Welcome to the Finally Marketing Networks podcast. We all know marketing is a very vast array of things and services. You will see kind of the evolution of marketing. We're going to interview guests from all walks of life. Stay tuned and enjoy the Finally Marketing Networks podcast. Today, I interview my friend, Dr. Sherry Price, who has a very, very specific niche business. Where she helps women who are struggling with over drinking and getting them out of that habit. We dive into that and her business and what she's doing and her coaching and she has a podcast. She's got a lot of stuff going on. We dive into all of it. So stay tuned in just a few moments for the Finally Marketing Networks podcast. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Finally Marketing Networks podcast. I'm here with another new friend, Sherry, out of beautiful San Diego, California. Sherry, how are you doing today? I'm awesome, Mitchell. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic as always. And before we kind of just dive in, I always let the guests introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about the world of Sherry it looks like from day to day and what you do. And then we'll dive in after that. Sounds great. Um, so I'm Sherry Price. I trained as a pharmacist. I have my doctorate in pharmacy, practice for 20 plus years as a pharmacist. And at the end of that, um, I transitioned over to being a stopover drinking coach. And that was because of my own journey with alcohol. I would use alcohol daily, actually nightly, not during the day, but nightly as a way to relax, as a way to transition from work life to mommy life and home life, alcohol for fun, uh, parties on the weekend. It just became a little more prevalent in my life than I wanted it to be. And I really was seeking ways to reduce the amount that I drank. And personally, I wasn't interested in abstinence. And that's when I Googled, found a life coach who can help me break the habit cycle of over drinking. And once I learned how to do that and how it's transformed, just not my relationship with alcohol, but my relationship with my family, showing up as a better mom, as a better wife, and just feeling so much better about myself, I wanted to transition and do this for other women because it is is so powerful and it's tools that I didn't know existed. And it's certainly something that I didn't find in the medical community. And I think it's a much needed service because I think a lot of us wait till we hit rock bottom or we have those devastating moments where we get a DUI or the liver enzymes go up or whatever it is that wakens us up to say, hey, we should change this. But we don't have to wait to get to that part. And during my research and my journey on drinking less, I found that most people who over drink, 90% or more are just over drinkers. They're not qualified or categorized, if you will, as an alcoholic or somebody with severe addiction. And I think this information needs to be known because we're kind of as a society embracing a lot of drinking, especially during COVID. Rates of drinking for women have gone up 70% just in the last year alone. So just having awareness, um, not talking about it as a good or a bad thing, and it's something that you can overcome. So that's what I provide for women is this space that we could talk about it and really take care of it before it becomes a bigger problem. So I guess my first question after all of those is what would you define an alcoholic as? So we got over drinkers, you got alcoholics. Where does that line get crossed? That's a great question. And I don't think it's black and white. Um, it's a common question. And it's something, you know, even I thought I said, maybe I am an alcoholic. I mean, I drink nightly and I over drink a lot. Maybe I am an alcoholic, but I didn't feel it was wrecking my life. I think there's 
there's some other ways that we feel like, okay, if I'm prioritizing that over going to work or paying my bills, like that's when it felt like it really established a huge hold on me. So I think a lot of us are in this like, yeah, I just drink sometimes a little too much. Sometimes I binge, sometimes I overdo it. And for me, like the definition of over drinking is when you start noticing negative consequences show up. For me, it was like forgetting conversations, passing out, having a bit of a hangover the next day or not feeling good, gaining weight, um, the mental chatter. Should I drink? Should I not drink? How much should I buy? Like all of those little pieces kind of woke me up to say like, Hey, this is something that maybe we should, you know, as part of a wellness strategy, right? We're all into eating good, eating healthy, organic, right? That's all out there, but nobody's talking about like looking at the drinking aspect of that and not saying you have to cut it out completely, but just how to rein it in. And so that you are in charge of the drinking and not the drink in charge of you. And so, you know, you talk about your past being an alcoholics. I know what I've heard in this world is people typically alcoholics, you really, once you, if you beat it, you really probably shouldn't have it again because you could spiral down into it. So as a past alcoholic, you still drink. And then if you do, how do you manage that in your life now? Yeah. So I want to just clarify, I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. I just felt I was somebody with an alcohol habit. (laughs) I call it a habit or a pattern. It was like five o'clock was when I would start drinking. I'd cook dinner, have a nice glass of wine. Maybe my intention was just to have one or two, but I usually drink the bottle. Sometimes I'd even have more. Sometimes I would have less. But it was something that I felt it was so routine. It was just part of my daily life. And so it wasn't like, now I'm not going to work. Now I'm not paying bills. But there were other minor irritants and consequences coming from that. So now I'm at the place where I feel I could take it or leave it. I may have a drink here. I may have two drinks there. But I really don't crave more. I don't. I've learned through science and rewiring the brain how you can change your desire for something. Um, And that's something I empower women with. Because whatever you do consistently, right? It's kind of like that feedback loop for the brain. It's like, it's going to want more and want more, especially if it comes with a reward like alcohol, but there are ways and behaviors and strategies you can implement so that you keep it under control. This is obviously a very hot topic item that can really, I think, make a lot of people uncomfortable talking about it. And I think it's one of those things. I think it's just like the pornography talk when people bring up that they're, oh, whoa, we don't, let's not, we don't want to talk about that, you know, and it's, uh, but it's something I feel like depending on the circle of people we're in, it needs to be talked about saying like, hey, people struggle with this or, you know, people agree or disagree with this. Why do you think people don't want to talk about over drinking and alcoholism openly or like to talk about when people maybe think they are an over drinker? They don't want to mention that to people. Where is that stemming from? If we as a society, it's very approved, I guess you got, you can get a drink kind of anywhere. Every, every store has it, but why don't we ever want to talk about that issue, even though it's available everywhere? Yeah, I think we're at that point with alcohol that it's either glamorized or stigmatized. I think we've been away with that with other things in the past where we haven't been in full acceptance. You know, you can think of, you know, lesbian gays, right? Like we used to think differently then. It's just our thought process has been like, you can either control it or you can't. But there is this spectrum and there is this middle ground, right? Where it's progressing in terms of your consumption and maybe how much you're becoming reliant on it. Like I was codependent on it for my happiness, for my relaxation, all the things. 
things. And so we're kind of feeling judged if we put ourselves out there. For me as a professional, especially in healthcare, I was worried about losing my license as a pharmacist. I was worried about what my patients would think about me. I was worried about what my colleagues would think about me if I spoke openly about it. And I also feel what also prevented me from getting help sooner was that I thought the only way to get help was to cut it out completely. And that just wasn't something I was interested in. So I think there's a lot of reasons people don't bring it up. Plus, if you bring it up, then people like start thinking, oh, you're fine. And they minimize it for you because they don't want to make issue of their drinking. And I know peer pressure is a big one for this world. I think about some of the conferences I've gone to before, and I feel like they just drink and have a good time, which, hey, I love that part of alcohol where you can bring people together and you have a good time together to an extent. And then it can obviously go over the top. And I remember going to a marketing conference and buddy, me and my buddy sat down and he's like, hey, let's go get a drink. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I just wasn't feeling it because I will drink an occasional like wine or I love mojitos. So he sat down and I said, he ordered whatever he ordered. And I said, I'll have a, a water. And he goes, wait, wait. He goes, I'm not sitting at the bar with you. If you're going to drink a water, you're going to drink something alcoholic. And he ordered something random for me. And I was like, oh, fine. You know, so boom, I like now I'm drinking this drink, which it was just like whatever it was, super small. But people were like, no, you need to drink with me. I don't want you drinking water. It's like, can't have a good time without just drinking a cup of water. I mean, it was just so interesting. And I get really uncomfortable around these conferences I've gone to. Where if you go after all the events are done for the day, and everybody goes to the bar the night and they get, they drink way too much and they just aren't themselves anymore. They're, they then they get rude or they just don't remember anything. I was like, well, I just think that's so weird. I'm so afraid I would make a mistake if I did something like that, where I'm going to say something to somebody that I really shouldn't have said, and it's going to be caught on camera, and then boom, it's going to be all over. That's what freaks me out. But I guess it doesn't freak everybody out. I don't. Do you know more about the mindset of people when they're in those situations, and do they want to get to that point every time, or is it an accident every time they go? Oh, well, just it'll be fun, and we'll forget it tomorrow. I think it's both. I think some people really enjoy the buzzed state. I think some people really uh, look to alcohol as a social lubricant. You know, we call it liquid courage. Um, some of us suffer, myself too, with um, a bit of social anxiety. Like I just get nervous meeting new people. How are they going to perceive me? What am I going to say? Am I going to say something dumb or stupid? So it's just a nice way to like buffer away all those emotions, right? And just to kind of feel better about yourself and a little bit more um, intoxicated, right? Under the influence of the alcohol. Now, some people, it's just accidental. It's like I was having such a good time. I wasn't paying attention to how much I was refilling my drinks, who was buying them. And I just got caught up in the moment. And that happens a lot too, because you're not paying attention to the alcohol. You're paying attention to the conversation and the people and the jokes and the laughter. So that becomes like what? For a lot of women that I work with, it's like, I don't, I just didn't even know it was happening. And so we bring into, you know, drinking is with awareness. Like we need to pay attention at least in the beginning until we get that control again, until we can get that kind of an automatic process. It's like, oh, hey, wait, what number drink am I on? You know, just so that we're aware. It's kind of like, am I going to order more nachos? Wait, let me check in and see if I'm still hungry. <laughs> or am I just eating because the people around me are eating? And is it true that you you build up tolerance with it? So if I, you know, if you're a 400 pound man, you're going to be able to drink more than a 150 pound guy. And, and then if you've drank two 
have four beers a day for a year, you can hold withstand a lot more than a guy who's never drank before and has one beer. Is that that's all true? Absolutely. That's just the pharmacology of how alcohol works. Yes, tolerance definitely develops. I've seen some women be able to drink men under the table, right? So, and it's not like they're stompering home or stupering home. It's just that their body's gotten used to that amount. Just like my body, I even noticed it in my journey with drinking less is I used to be able to tolerate easily a bottle of wine and then some, it could be cocktails or more wine, but that would destroy me right now. Like that's just not my norm. That And so your body resets and your body adjusts back down, which is such good news that your body wants to go back to baseline because alcohol is not needed. I'm not saying you can never drink, but I choose to drink. But when I choose to drink, I choose with purpose and I'm fully present and mindful rather than just like, oh, I'm going to the party and we'll see what happens. That's a good outlook. I feel like that's some that takes time to build up maybe for most people to have that mindset. I know they we talked jokes, you know, the, the college years, of course, where the, the parties happen. I was just I was never in those circles. So I never was never even smoked a cigarette or dr- drugs, alcohol. I never like done, got into all those parties. Nobody invited me to parties too. I was homeschooled my whole life. So I feel like I was just never in those circles when I played football in high school. They never invited me to any of this stuff, which is probably for the best. They didn't want the lame homeschooler coming to all these parties. <laughs> but so kind of dive into more so how you're helping women with this. So do you kind of seek them out with some with uh, marketing and networking or do they find you because of referrals from their friend who's found help through you and then they get connected? And when they do, what is that first step in that, that process to get them started on this journey? Yeah, so I do a lot of different ways to find me. So at first it was through Facebook ads because I didn't know, I haven't found my voice yet. I was timid to do Facebook Lives about it. I found when I did do Facebook Lives, nobody wanted to comment around somebody talking about alcohol. I get it, right? Because these are searchable and there's, you know, there's the stigma around alcohol. So I didn't really know how to reach the people that I wanted to help. So I start off with Facebook ads <laughs> and we could go right into that topic, Mitchell, because holy cow, some of the comments I got back, I thought this would be embraced. This would be a novel concept people would want to learn more about, but it's not the case, right? I'm going against the grain. When I had one of the first posts um, that weren't enthralled about my message, I hid underneath my sheets for about three days and wouldn't come out. (laughs) I didn't know how to respond because I understand everybody's journey is unique. And there are some people that need to be in abstinence. I truly believe that. But I don't believe that's the majority of people, given the statistics that I've learned and how I've educated myself. And even the National Institutes of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse say you don't have to abstain, right? If you're an over drinker, there are other modalities to rein in this issue, right? They don't even want to call it a problem. It is a problem, but you know, some people don't even want to call it a problem. They just want to say, I want to handle this issue because there is a lot of shame associated with it, right? It has destroyed lives for people. It has destroyed livers for people. And I get it. They may think it's the only way and that was their way for them, but it's not the way for everybody. And so once I started learning how to communicate better and what my messaging was around and who I was, my target audience was, then it was able to craft better messaging, craft better copy and all of that to attract the person who I want to help and who wants the help. I kind of would relate this. I know 
it's a little way, pretty much way different. But all the other parents out there, obviously, you know, we're new kids, almost two, we two in September, and so you got uh, all the parents go, oh, you're doing this wrong, and oh, you're doing like all these things, and people mom shame. There goes like the mom shame stuff. So you know, they'll post like my wife, will, she's in all these mom groups on Facebook, and a mom will post something, and my wife actually will look at it and go, oh, this is gonna be fun, and so just see all these comments going, that's wrong, you're doing it wrong, do it this way, it's what I did. And I was like, oh man, and kind of the thing we've kind of settled on is you know one every every kid is different that's our biggest thing we always tell people every kid is different because we got told you know when our son was born they were like oh the baby stage is the best stage you're gonna love it and we're like okay cool and then he had colic for six months he was crying all the time he was upset we're like we that was a hard stage for us and then we actually enjoy this toddler stage more which a lot of people always talk about how horrible the toddler years are so we're not telling people either way we're like hey every kid's different but we enjoy right now he can communicate now he can we i can run around and play with them so the i don't know i I picture that as you're getting like all this shame from people going no you're wrong this is not how you treat alcoholics and all this stuff so i can imagine people be kind of brutal i remember looking at your facebook page you know before we hopped on and i was like all these negative reviews and i'm like that's got to be hard like that's just got to be mentally draining to have people you're trying to truly help people from your heart like you you're a pharmacist that switched to do this to help people and then you're getting abused for it so are you are you able to beat some of that a little bit better now like now you don't have to hide under the sheets for three days now right you can just you know maybe have a glass of wine and relax about it and <laughs> move on that's so funny yeah I don't hide now and I actually have like what I talk about in my programs a lot is about having that emotional agility right there are going to be things that come at us in life that we're not happy about right what are our kids do something we're not happy in all of this stuff used to make me go drink or I used to choose to drink in those scenarios so learning that emotional management is huge. So for me, I just frame it in a way that like, I want to be supportive and I want to be loving. And that's just my character. And that's who I want to be. So I think to myself, okay, this is this person's journey. Is there anything with love that I could say back? Like, I hear you, I understand, and you are right in some areas, right? Or with certain people. And then some comments, I'm like, there is nothing loving I can say. So I'm just going to let them be and hurt people, hurt people, right? And there was a point in time I didn't know you can cut back and you could be successful. I didn't have any role models for that. I didn't see this prevalent in the medical community. So I was skeptical too, that it would work for me. I really was, but I was willing to try it because I wasn't willing to be abstinent. So it could just be a knowledge issue. It could be where they're at. It could be what they've walked through in life. And I will never understand, you know, people's shoes that they're walking in. And so I just receive it more with that's their stance and that's their freedom of speech and expression. But you're right. There is some of the comments that still happen that still hit me in the gut. And it's like, oh, that one really hurt. You said a phrase that I absolutely love. And our, my pastor will say that all the time is hurt people, hurt people. And to put to if you can really have that mindset, which in the in the middle of that happening, it's really hard to remind yourself of that. They go, man, this person must be struggling with this, have a family member that maybe have passed away from this. Like, you know, there's so much pain that people have and they're carrying around and baggage. So to remember that, man, that's you're already a way ahead of the game if that's how you can especially if you're trying to respond to them knowing where they're possibly coming from because one of the services we offer as a 
the marketing agency is responding to reviews for clients on their behalf. And one of the biggest things I push, the reason I push that to clients is when they respond, typically there's emotion behind that response if they get a negative one. And you can see it. You can feel it. Usually when you read a review going, ooh, that was the owner. That was the person like, no, you're a liar. You're wrong. We're not that, you know, and it's like, uh, when we respond, obviously we don't have any skin in the game as much. Even though they are a client, we can respond with no emotion behind it. So anybody who's listening, have somebody else respond to your reviews. If it's even from somebody else from the company or sit on it for 24 hours, you know, as much as you need to respond to those pretty quickly, sit on it and let that emotion kind of die down. If you need to hide under the sheets for three days, hey, hide under the sheets and respond later. Maybe you have that glass of wine and then just because the yeah, emotion, then you kind of, it can explode. And if you're in an argumentative, what are they going to do back? They're going to argumentative back and then just kind of can blow up into not something nice. So you have these written ones. Have you ever had people come to you at a conference or come to you in person and vent their emotions to you directly? Not yet. And it could be just because we're coming out of COVID times, but I just gave a presentation at a conference two days ago and it was well received. Everybody felt, I think a lot of people just want to start shedding some of the shame and the guilt, right? And you might start off drinking less and then decide, wow, this doesn't serve me at all. I want to cut it out completely. And so that's the approach I take. It's like, let's let's just start with a taper or let's just start cutting back in ways that you're ready for right now. And it's a journey. It's always a journey. Life is always a journey. So just meeting people when they're ready to change is huge. And I find that not having an agenda for their change helps them propel their own journey along. And I love how you said about not responding with emotion because I have done that in the past. And you're right. It doesn't fare out well, right? Dropping the rope is something I just do. It's like, I'm just not going to engage. It's like a tug of war, right? Who's right? It's not about being right. It's just about, do you want my help? Do you want me to explain? Do you want more information of where I get my information? And if not, that's fine too, if you want to stick to your opinion and your information. So if I think if you come at it with a loving approach, you can really make more inroads because all they're trying to do is help other people change, right? And they think the way is abstinence. And the way I'm trying to help people is by changing and, and just embracing what change they're willing to make and at least evaluate their relationship with alcohol. I mean, that's where it has to start. And I'm assuming for you to help them, they also have to be in the mindset of wanting help as well, or is this, okay. And it's, you know, what I've heard in this world, because I just haven't, I don't know a ton about this subject is you can't ever make them change. Like they have to be at the point where they're willing to like, yes, I want that change and seeking out that help or they're just can't really, I can't make somebody first do something. So when somebody comes to you and they're like, Hey, I, I need help with this. I want help. What are some of those first things you're doing? Or what are those steps that you can, I know we could probably dive into this for hours, but I guess that condensed version of this woman comes to you. Uh, needs help. What is your process? Yeah. So first, uh, it's really like you said, that motivational interviewing, like, why do you want to change? Is it you? Like I just spoke to a woman yesterday who it's her husband that wanted her to change, but she didn't want to change. And I said, well, there's no way my programs, my services are going to work because you have to want the change. And I think offering people that truth helps them see it, right? Because they she's thinking she should want it. And a lot of times when I do tell women that they come back and they're like, wow, I've been thinking about this and you told me the truth and it's actually a change I do want. I was just caught up in the argument with my husband, right? But it is something I want. I'm just scared. And so I just offer that advice or radical honesty. I always love coaching and working with women with radical honesty, but with a loving bent, right? Loving, supportive bent. But once they're willing to change, they have to be willing to take action. And we talk about what action steps they're going to be taking. One is 
certainly around awareness. Like we just want to be aware. When do you drink? What are your triggers for drinking? And we just start changing that pattern to the trigger. And here's the thing. Most people are drinking because of a pain point in their life. And we just look at eradicating that pain point or managing that pain point if we can differently. Like my daughter has Tourette syndrome and we did not know until she was five. We had thought maybe she was on these evaluations. We weren't getting concrete diagnoses. And there's just a, that's a pain point, right? You're suffering because you feel your kids suffering and you don't know how to help them. And they're not engaging with play and other people appropriately. And so there's this like mom guilt, like you were saying, this mom shaming, like, well, here's how the Tourette society says you should do it. But those techniques weren't working for her. Like you said, every kid is unique. And so that was a pain point, which led to me wanting to numb out from at night. Like, I just don't want to think about it. This is so much. I don't know how best to help her. And I'm a healthcare practitioner. How could that be? You know, just feeling like you're failing. So when my coach worked with me, that was one of the pain points we worked on because I firmly believe drinking is not the real issue. There's an underlying issue that leads to the drinking. So we look at all the underlying issues. And so I I like to say to my clients, we're going to work to make your life so good that alcohol becomes irrelevant. Love that. Does it take, I'm assuming some people maybe a couple months and some people maybe a couple of years. Is there like a certain time frame that this typically falls under for getting, getting these women help? My signature program is three months. And I think you can learn majority of the tools, but you're going to be practicing them longer, right? Because you're creating a new lifestyle. And for me and for a lot of women, it's creating a new identity. I used to be the person who drank all the time and now I'm not like now, how do I go to a party? Now, how do I hang out at the bar and not feel weird ordering water? (laughs) Like that felt comfortable for you, but that felt very uncomfortable. The first couple of times I did that, it's like, this feels wrong. This feels not right. And so just rewiring your brain where that now is how you operate and finding joy in that, not making joy about drinking, but making joy about experiencing all life has to offer. And then what is your, uh, I don't know if you have a stat, like a six, your success rate out of hundred women that go through my program. Do you have a, a number of how many, like, I don't know if the, how you would judge, you know, you have to monitor all these people or whatever, but do you have yeah. any number success numbers? It's very hard to gather numbers. I just assess them at the end of three months and I ask them how much has your drinking reduced? So most people, uh, I'd say 90% or more have reduced their drinking by anywhere between 60 to 80%. Like for me, I was at 47 drinks roughly a week, which is a lot, right? That's a lot. That's just a lot of money. I calculated and it was $4,500 a year, roughly, right? Because it's in with your groceries. It's in with your food bill when you go out. But yeah, that's roughly what I calculated I spent. And I don't come anywhere near that number now. And so some of the women calculate it too. And it's just, it's another motivating factor. It's like, oh, I can save for a cruise or I can save for a vacation or I can save for a massage for myself every month, right? And do a membership as a self-care, feel-good activity if they enjoy that. Now, does something typically ever take the place of alcohol? So if somebody, I love coffee, I'm in the coffee and sodas, like, is it, does it usually ever something take its place in form of like a drink or does it usually just kind of just go away? Both. So I have some clients that turn to sugar because they, you know, they're used to getting sugar from the wine and then they've noticed their sugar cravings now that they've decreased. Um, I actually have women that have had bariatric surgery or issues around food and they clean that up and now they've substituted the food with alcohol. So now they're drinking more than they want. So we, you know, we work on making sure that nothing is going to be substituted. So when we, we start noticing the sugar, we have modality 
policies and strategies to be like, nope, we're not going to attach to something else unless that something else feels good. You know, unless somebody's like taking yoga three days a week and they, and they've always wanted to, and there's no negative consequences for, from that activity. Okay. And that's another thing. Like, I think a lot of women particularly, cause I don't work much with men, but a lot of women think they have to substitute out drinking for something else. It's like, oh, if I'm not drinking, I need to be going for a walk or I need to be reading a book. And and yes, that could be helpful in the short term or drinking tea. That's what a lot of women try to substitute out. And I just want to remind everyone that you can just be, we don't really have to substitute it out unless that feels good, but we don't have to. And I think a lot of people feel that that's the way to success is by substituting out with LaCroix or whatever. And yes, if it works and yes, if you need a drink and you're thirsty, <laughs> but if you don't need a drink and you're not thirsty, it's it's okay just to sit. <laughs> That's good too. So obviously you're, you're in a business as we kind of talked about just a little bit earlier is, you know, you're trying Facebook ads. You're in a very unique one. I feel like that is hard to market. So I'd love to hear, have you had six, something that was really successful for marketing your business? Because maybe we have other people listening that are consultants and coaches. And that's, a, that's a hard one to be in. So how, what has worked and what have you done? Have you had any flops? Just are like, wow, that was a failure. You know, have any of those you want to share? Yeah. So Facebook has shut me down a couple of times. <laughs> so my ads have not worked, which is okay. Um, I do a private Facebook group and I do market that on my website. It goes to the landing page after you sign up for my freebie on my website that you can um, learn ways to stop over drinking. So then there's a page that comes up and says, hey, join this private Facebook group. And so I'm able to do Facebook lives in there, offer value. And the women really love the community of, well, if somebody posts like, I'm doing this, has anybody had experience with this? And so a lot of other people will post. And so I just love having the open conversation around being well, right? And, and looking at wellness strategies and other things that have worked for other women that they're sharing in the group. I do kick out anybody who's not respectful or mean or not supportive, and that's in the rules. So I feel that's been successful. And then what's been really successful for me is these high-end magazines that I buy ads in. And I talk about my journey and the service I offer. I get a lot of clients from these magazines in particularly in the San Diego area where I'm at. Very good. And if you were to leave anybody who's listening with a couple nuggets, it could be one, two, three, anything that you, they're, they're listening. And this could be somebody who maybe is struggling with some type of addiction or is have a consulting business or anything. What's something that's kind of speaking to you right now that you'd want to leave everybody with? I think, you know, inside what to do and always I encourage people to trust that inner wisdom, right? I, I consider it my God wisdom, just it's my path, right? It's what the step I should take next. So whether that comes to your business, whether that comes to wanting to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol and see if it's serving you in this slice of your life. And then also knowing that there is no one size fits all approach, not with marketing, not with cutting back on drinking, right? You have to be willing to try things, see what results you get. Is this working? Not be tied to taking it personally. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know we could talk for longer. I know, but I want to make sure people get at least, you know, look at the half hour here um, podcast they can listen to on it. Sherry, I love what you're doing. I love that your your vision just for helping helping those with this, these addictions to that that doesn't have to beat them. So please keep doing what you're doing, and thank you for taking time to hop on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity, Mitchell. It's been a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. Thank you. 
Well, a huge shout out to Dr. Sherry Price for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. I hope you guys learned something. And again, as always, that you're able to take something from today's episode and apply it to your business or your life to make you better than you were earlier today before you listen to the podcast. So thank you, Dr. Sherry Price. And guys, as always, we'll be here next week with another awesome guest on the Finally Marketing Networks podcast. We'll see you then.